0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener live in LA on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Pulitzer Prize winner Elizabeth Colbert of The New Yorker will talk about Trump, climate change, and species extinction. And Manuel Pastor will go over the recent history of California's fight against Trump to slow climate change. His book is State of Resistance. First up, We remember Trump's State of the Union speech. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, we're still thinking about what we learned from Trump's State of the Union speech on Tuesday night, mainly that the State of the Union is not good For comment, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back.
1: Always good to be here, John.
0: Well, don't you think we should do what Trump said and reject the politics of revenge, resistance, and retribution and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation, compromise, and the common good?
1: Uh, it, well, if we're into alliteration, of course, uh, we should uh, we should do that. Uh, but uh, uh, coming from Donald Trump, uh, this is like an offer to buy the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, uh, uh, there has not been uh, a president this divisive uh, maybe since Jefferson Davis. Uh, so uh, I, I think it was a kind of incon it was both incongruous and incongruous, Forgive me uh, for uh, <laughs> okay. uh, You know, uh, for for Donald Trump of all people to uh, encase his usual uh, you know slander and uh, bigotry in a few soothing words, and you know, it's kind of led to the impression that there were two separate speeches, uh, very inexpertly cobbled together, and he only meant one of them.
0: Well, there was. Uh... On exhibit a good side of trump he's against childhood cancer. We certainly can't disagree with him that that's true but let's let's look at the numbers
1: there. He said he his new budget would ask for five hundred million dollars over the next decade uh to combat uh childhood cancer and uh great okay uh he also said his next budget would have a little over seven hundred billion dollars in this one year. Uh, for the Pentagon budget, now, if you actually work that out um, that 's fifty million a year for childhood cancer and seven hundred billion a year uh, for the for the defense budget, which is a little less than one ten thousandth of uh, the amount of money being spent uh, on 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 the Pentagon. so what do you do when you make a proposal like that uh, and make it try to seem more substantial? Well, you find a char- ad- adorable girl who is a childhood cancer victim and who, beyond that actually was raising money to combat childhood cancer before she even got it and single her out in uh... in in the gallery and, and god knows trump spent i think at least half the speech singling <laughs> singling out people in the gallery but that that also you know uh... obviously no fault of the little girl but um, uh... it it gave a sort of uh... very carefully crafted misimpression that he cared about this, whereas, you know, the numbers show he cares about it a little less than one ten thousandth of the level he cares about uh, helping the Pentagon get their new Rocco Saco Space wars thing going.
0: Harold Meyerson demonstrates the power of arithmetic.
1: That's right. I was great in fourth grade arithmetic, and I I, I I cling to that.
0: Well, we were we were looking to see if there were going to be any new initiatives, any any uh, any changes in Trump's agenda. He did announce that one of his major priorities now is quote to protect patients with pre-existing conditions. And when he said that, the Republicans in the room leapt to their feet and applauded for protecting people with pre-existing conditions. But, but didn't the Trump administration refuse in court to defend uh, the Affordable Care Act, which protects people with pre-existing conditions?
1: Uh, the short answer to that is yes. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it did, and there's a, a, a suit from Republican attorneys general around the country uh, to, to get rid of the uh, Affordable Care Act, which would get rid of the requirement that insurance companies uh, in, in, insure uh, people's preconditions. And it was uh, this issue more than any other single issue on which Democrats ran for the House last November and picked up 40 seats. The Republicans got clobbered on this issue. So rhetorically, uh, Trump threw it in his speech, maybe hoping no one notices that it's totally contradicted by his administration's policy and by uh, the votes of every single Republican who voted time and time and time again to repeal the ACA. Uh, But there it was, uh, incongruously and in Congress uh, as part of the (laughs) State of the Union Address.
0: Uh, my favorite sentence was quite, was really a surprising one. Uh, Trump said, I'm quoting, if there's going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. It's not since Jesse Jackson have we had a couplet like that. <laughs> yeah,
1: Shakespeare is uh, is turning over in his grave, one of those closing couplets in one of his acts. Um, yeah, yeah, well, you know, you, all, you always wonder, um, you know, how much of uh, a State of the Union address the president himself actually writes. I think, like, the two sentences... Uh, on decrying these ridiculous independent investigations uh you know the only uh, the only uh two sentences in the in the whole speech where you, have, you clearly did clearly can detect trump 's own hand i mean either his or alan dershowitz 's but uh, uh you know I, I i i think that was uh, uh you know just just stamp a little authorial authority on the speech the, we have that.
0: Well, and of course, we were also looking for clues to, to uh, the 2020 campaign, assuming he runs for reelection, which a lot of us wonder if he's actually going to decide to drop out. But there was that weird moment where he said, tonight, I'm quoting again, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country, close quote. Seems like he's a little nervous about that. Well,
1: uh yeah, I mean it's an attack line it, it's a classic, you know, venerable Republican attack line against uh, uh against the Democrats at least as far back as uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh in the 1930s. Um clearly at a time when uh the Gallup poll and the Pew poll show that uh uh support for socialism among the American people is rising, uh it's uh, well over 50% among millennials uh and and Gen Zers that's the first time I think I've said Gen Zers on <laughs> on this show okay um and it, who are the people younger than millennials uh uh and and uh, it, you know it, it it's clear that given the state of american capitalism uh mainstream liberals now look more fondly than ever on the scandinavian models and things like that but you know there's a right wing scare campaign uh, to suggest that uh venezuela awaits us if not the gulag um, you know, if we get uh, Medicare for all or, or, or workers uh, serving on corporate boards, so yeah, I think that's uh, that, that's part of the attack, and I don't think it will work nearly as well as it did when the Soviet Union was uh, up and running. Uh, but um, you know, there's a line in a Yates poem: "What can I do but enumerate old themes?" <laughs> and in a sense, you know, that's that's the Republicans. Uh, Mantra and dilemma
0: uh,
1: rolled into one.
0: Well, the New York Times, I'm sure you noticed on page right. one today, above the fold, declared that, quote, the threat of socialism could provide Mr. Trump with a potentially effective weapon, close quote, in the 2020 presidential election. They specifically cited Medicare for all as one of the things that that uh, Trump could use to dramatize the threat of socialism. Uh, aren't there some polls on this?
1: Yeah, Medicare for All generally polls at about a 70% rate. Uh, higher taxes, much higher taxes on the rich polls, better than that. Uh, you know, free college polls uh, about as well. And then that's sort of the sum and substance of what those uh, who, you know, what what are Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are uh, are supporting and a green new deal which actually could well be an re- economic revitalization program for uh white uh working class rural and far flung communities so um, you know i mean this this is the this is really the old stuff that republicans are are relying on uh i think uh it it, it kind of reflects the um, elderly bias for lack of a better term yeah uh in the in the Republican Party because uh one of the reasons millennial support for socialism is historically high is they all grew up uh after Soviet communism had long since ceased to exist uh and uh you know this is just uh this is this is a great retread um I mean I could well make you know it, it could have the perverse effect actually since uh, Trump's disapproval ratings continue to rise into the 60% of, of making American socialism even more popular, because if Trump uh, keeps attacking it, uh, maybe there's something right about it,
0: you know? maybe there's something good. <laughs> well, when, uh, when Trump read that that scripted line about, we resolve that America will, will never be a socialist country, the cameras focused on Bernie Sanders. Um, you want to tell us about these new polls on how bernie would do against trump in various places
1: basically they show that he's uh, he's he's running ahead and and yeah. you know bernie has has long been since the 2016 election the uh, one figure in elected office who polls with a higher popularity rating than uh, than anyone else i mean uh, you know uh, he has this unchallengeable authenticity and no one ever uh, thought that this guy was bought by any special interest so uh, uh, and And you know Bernie has been um uh, very in, uh, given a kind of limited definition of what he means by democratic socialism when he gave a speech at Georgetown University in twenty fifteen as his campaign was really igniting in which he uh was was billed as his the camp, uh, the speech in which he would define his sense of democratic socialism he mainly cited. Um, The rather popular programs that this country enacted in the 1930s and 60s, uh, Social Security, Medicare, what have you, which are indeed socialist programs. They don't go far enough, but they are alternatives uh, to to the market failures of uh, uh, retirement security and and medical care for uh, for the elderly. Um, uh, You know, he, he wasn't citing, I mean, he wasn't not only citing Lenin, he wasn't really citing Norman Thomas or Michael Harrington. He was fighting Franklin Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, and Martin Luther King. So, you know, there there are there are there are there's a lot of support out there uh, for social democratic uh, policies, and the more so as capitalism in this country it becomes uh, less and less accommodating to any but the rich.
0: If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson. We are uh, recalling the Tuesday night uh, State of the Union speech and looking at its uh, implications and clues for the future. I I did see two, two relevant state polls on this Bernie Sanders socialism question. In North Carolina, a new poll shows that Bernie would beat Trump by three points. North Carolina is a state that Trump carried in 2016. And... Another state that Trump carried in 2016 is Michigan. There's a new Detroit News poll that shows that Bernie would beat Trump by 11 points in Michigan right now. I mean, this is not surprising to you and me, but it certainly bears on the question of whether the threat of socialism could provide Mr. Trump with a potentially effective weapon in 2020. That's the line from today's New York Times, um, page one. I want to go back to your... um, You mentioned the Green New Deal as an example of socialism in America today. Uh, Today, Alex Ocasio-Cortez introduced, uh, or no, yesterday, Alex uh, uh, introduced the Green New Deal proposal. Um, Let's talk about that a little bit. She described it as a a 10-year plan. that would pursue a what she called a world war ii scale mobilization tell us a little more about what what uh what they're talking about
1: well uh, also i should add there was a, a companion bill the same bill introduced in the senate by ed markey yes. who is the uh, senator from uh massachusetts,
0: uh massachusetts not to be confused with Merkley from or oregon is that right
1: yeah, that's correct. Yes, not to be confused. Um,
0: Markey and Merkley, uh, and they're both for the Green New Deal, I believe.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about the Green New Deal is that, in a sense, it's it's so uh, it, it it covers a lot of a lot of different bases, um, uh, and it it involves a great deal of public expenditure on new forms of energy, of uh, of, of mandates the like of which California already has in terms of. Uh, changing uh, the source of, uh, of of electric power, uh, and it just speeds up the timetable. Um, I, I might add that you know, um, one other feature of the Trump State of the Union was his uh, taking credit and pride in the uh, significant increase in oil production yeah. uh, in this country. And I was sitting there thinking, well, that's just going to mobilize uh, people like the Sunrise Movement, that uh, AOC. Uh, demonstrated with in Nancy Pelosi's office, um, you know, uh, to be more anti-Trump and more vigilant uh, in, in 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 what they do. So, you know, I, it, one of the one of the things about Trump's speech was uh, e- even the uh, in some ways less outrageous things he said, which you know, obviously, everything about immigrants falls clearly under that category uh... but even that you know you, you could just see for everything he said there was an equal and possibly more than opposite political reaction uh... you know and and while while people writing about the speech said well this was directed at his base uh... we need to remember how much of that speech had the effect of uh... counter-mobilizing uh... you know his
0: the
1: <laughs> the base of the resistance uh... in, in all forms and shapes
0: excellent point uh, I, I brought in uh, AOC's remarks about the Green New Deal proposal that they announced yesterday um, in an interview on NPR this morning. Of course, she was asked the inevitable question, how are you going to pay for all this? And she said, uh, for 40 years, we tried to let the private sector take care of our energy system, Uh, and and for 40 years we believed that the forces of the market will will create the innovation that we need. Uh, She added, except for the fact that there's a little uh, thing called pollution in the river and they don't have to pay for it, the taxpayers have to pay for cleaning up our air, cleaning up our water, and saving the planet, we've already been paying the costs, except that we have not been getting the benefit. We're here to say the government is not just for cleaning up other people's mess. It's also for building solutions in places where the private sector will not, close quote. That's a pretty good explanation of what socialism uh, might mean in a- America a- 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 o- C, today.
1: AOC, I mean, almost apart from her ideology and her beliefs, AOC is the most natural genius at communication, that we've seen in a very long time. Uh, and th- th- thank God she's on our side. <laughs> yes. uh, she, 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 she's, she's absolutely, uh, I think, great at, uh, at, at exactly this kind of stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, I think there will uh, be more like her. They may not have her genius, but they certainly will have her politics.
0: On the other hand, we have Nancy Pelosi, who was quoted in the paper today, saying, what do they call it, Green Dream? Nobody knows what's in it, but they support it anyway, close quote. That seemed like sort of an ominous thing to say to me.
2: Well,
1: you know, uh, by the same token, I mean, Pelosi, uh, I think, senses that this is a coming thing. Uh, I I don't take that as a statement of opposition. I I take it uh, as a statement basically saying, look, you know, we, we control one house. There's only so much we can do uh we're going to hold hearings on it uh you know and uh, uh it'll take until 2021 if we control the senate and the white house then uh to get something through but yes there is a sort of old hand uh cautiousness uh about this so uh you know we 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 shall see uh, on the other hand pelosi you know played trump like a Stradivarius on uh <laughs> yes. on the government shutdown yes. so uh she, she has her she has many good points, too.
0: Uh, we've only got about three minutes left here. I, I need to ask you, what the heck is going on in Virginia? That's a damn good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, part of
1: it, the, the thing that astonishes me is this, uh, and this is kind of a narrow answer to a, a broad question. Uh, you know, blackface was uh, perhaps the dominant mode of American entertainment in the mid and late 19th century, it uh, it had faded. There were uh, several stars, let's say, of the Ziegfeld Follies in the 1910s and 20s, notably Al Jolson, who relied on it. And most of them didn't. By the late 1940s, when it popped up in popular culture, it was in things like the movie The Jolson Story, which was, oh, this is how we depict old American uh, culture. Okay, that was 70 years ago. Uh, what the hell? Is it still doing on college campuses in Virginia in the 1980s, and probably still in some places today? So you know, it's 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 like vestiges of uh, you know, while white racism continues unabated, it's like uh, even entertainment memes that have gone out of fashion 70 years ago. It still has this uh, you know, uh, this this. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like a sponge, the lowest form of life that will never die. <laughs> like uh, a and, and uh, you know, we, 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 we see this. And, you know, there, there, no one has said that Ralph Northam or, or, or Mark Herring, the Attorney General of Virginia, are, uh, you know, segregationists or Klansmen or Nazis. They're not. They're not. This was considered relatively normal uh, in, in, you know, their little quadrant of the culture. Uh, normal enough so that you could put it in the yearbook and no one said, don't put it there. Um, so, you know, uh, e- even though the Virginia situation for Democrats right now is, is is completely nuts, and things are beginning to turn up now about some of the Republican leaders in
0: yeah. Virginia, too,
1: which wouldn't surprise me, it's quite possible the entire state legislature <laughs> may be gone by this time next week. Uh, you know, and uh, that's, that's, you know, except for, you know, people under 30. Uh, but, uh, we shall see yet another reason why we need the millennials uh, in politics sooner rather than later.
0: Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. Harold, I'm asking you to follow Trump's advice on Tuesday night and choose greatness. No matter the trials we face, no matter the challenges to come, we must go forward together.
1: Well, I'm going to wash up and then do that. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK. This is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, Manuel Pastor on California's fight against Trump. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Elizabeth Colbert on Trump, Climate, and Endangered Species. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her book, The Sixth Extinction. Now it's time to talk about how California is leading the fight against Trump to slow climate change and welcome immigrants and refugees. For that, we turn to Manuel Pastor. He's Professor of Sociology and American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. He currently directs the Program for Environmental and Regional Equity at USC and also USC's Center for the Study of Immigrant Integration. He's a prolific public speaker and writer. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, the Huffington Post, the American Prospect, and dozens of other publications. And his most recent book is State of Resistance, What California's Dizzying descent and Remarkable Resurgence Means for America's Future. And he's a featured speaker at the UCI Conference on Climate this Friday at 5 o'clock. He'll be at the Crystal Cove Auditorium at the UCI Student Center, along with Bill McKibben and Elizabeth Colbert. Manuel Pastor, welcome to the program. Glad to be with you. Well, you recently wrote an op-ed for the L.A. Times with Pramila Jayapal, the member of Congress from Seattle, who is now co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She's a hero of ours. Tell us about her and about the piece that you two co-authored, Why is the U.S. so far behind unnaturalizing new citizens?
3: Well, Pramila is a hero of mine as well and uh, someone that I've worked with for years when she was in the state of Washington doing organizing around immigrant rights and immigrant integration. And what we tried to do in the op-ed is point out just how pernicious the Trump administration is in so many different ways. So we tend on the immigration issue to focus in on the uh, desire of the Trump administration to build a border wall, but they've also created a sort of second wall which is the prevention of people uh, becoming citizens who are actually lawful permanent residents who are here. The number of people who have applied for citizenship but not had their application looked at and processed has jumped up from about 350,000 during Obama to about 750,000 under Trump. So that's delaying a lot of people who wanted, for example, to be able to become a citizen and be able to vote in the 2018 midterm elections. While waiting times to become a citizen used to be somewhere between five and six months, they're now averaging about a year, and in some places it can take you up to two years after you make an application to become a citizen to become a citizen. This is having deep impacts on the level of civic engagement and democracy, and it's another way in which there's so many different acts on the part of the Trump administration that is seeking to disempower immigrant communities and their voice in public policymaking.
0: Well, let's talk about California and Trump. You open your book with a startling historical point. When the United States in 2016 elected Trump, the country was going through the same kind of political moment that California had gone through 22 years earlier in 1994, Please explain.
3: Well, what we like to say in the book is that America is going through its Prop 187 moment. Proposition 187, passed in 1994 by California voters, was the proposition that sought to deny social services and educational services to undocumented immigrants in the state. So it reflected a particular kind of anti-immigrant anxiety, hysteria that was occurring in the state of California. But what people forget is that California in the early 1990s experienced half of the country's net job losses in that recession, because the national recession of the early 1990s was about the cutback in defense spending as a result of the end of the Cold War that hit California aerospace hard and basically knocked the props out of the rest of our industrial structure as well. So we experienced half of the country's net job losses in that period and Rush Limbaugh began his talk radio career in the late 1980s in uh, Sacramento. So that kind of perfect stew of demographic anxiety, economic uncertainty, and profiteering from political polarization, California got there first in the early 1990s. So the interesting question, which we try to explore in the book, is how did the state go from the very kind of low point in terms of Uh, Community across communities and a sense of unity about what we needed to do about the economy to a state that was one of the first two states to raise its minimum wage to $15 an hour, to a state which has proudly declared itself under something called the California Values Act. That's pretty appropriately named. A sanctuary state in which the police are not supposed to cooperate with immigration and customs enforcement, and a state which, of course, is also leading on addressing climate change and also addressing sort of environmental injustice as part of dealing with climate change. So it's that arc of change from that low point to this kind of more progressive moment that we try to track in the book.
0: And remind us what was in Prop 187 that California passed in 1994. And remind us then what has happened to the Republican Party of California since then.
3: Well, Prop 187 sought to... Uh, strip away any access to social services to undocumented immigrants, and it also went as far as to try to s- strike away educational services uh, or education, which is actually uh, against uh, very Supreme Court rulings about uh, equal protection, uh, particularly for children in terms of access to education. so actually, most of prop one hundred and eighty seven wound up getting struck down in the courts as being clearly unconstitutional. But, you know, interestingly, Prop 187 was the way in which Governor Pete Wilson, who was uh, facing difficulties uh, with his reelection, he was about 20 points behind Kathleen Brown, who was a Democratic candidate, and he decided to latch himself onto this anti-immigrant uh, movement as a way of raising up his numbers, a little bit like how Trump, who was not necessarily doing well in the polls sort of latched himself onto anti-immigrant sentiment to triumph in 2016. Prop 87, though, was a piece with a number of other propositions uh, passed in the 1990s uh, that political scientist Daniel Hossang, who is currently at Yale, called racial propositions. So it wasn't just going after immigrants. There was an attack on bilingual education. There was an attack on affirmative action. There was a three-strikes law and uh, a law to try juveniles as adults that very much led to rapid incarceration and racially racialized uh, over-incarceration. So it was really a kind of broad attack on the demographic change that was occurring in the state of California and the anxieties that was provoking in longtime white presidents. It was something that the Republican Party rode, thinking that it would be something that would help uh, their electoral prospects as it did with Pete Wilson but it wound up shredding uh, the Republican Party such that the Republican Party in the state of California now is actually the third most popular party. You've got the Democratic Party, then you've got the decline to states, people who are calling themselves formally independent and not registering with either the Democrat or Republican Party, and then finally the Republican Party. The Republican Party does not hold one single statewide office and has not since Eleanor Schwarzenegger. The Republican Party, finds itself in a super-minority, because the Democrats are in a super-majority, more than 60%, in both the uh, uh, Assembly and the State Senate, and it's very much a kind of decimated party. So I think that the Republican Party, nationwide, is trying to see whether or not the idea of following the Trump strategy is a way to resuscitate the party or to kind of permanently marginalize it into a smaller and more steadily shrinking space that's really what the lesson of California is for Republican Party nationwide.
0: You focused a lot of your research and writing on environmental justice issues involving people of color. What do we know about how people of color view environmental politics? The Trump people, of course, appeal to them by arguing that Republicans want to save the jobs of working class people while the climate movement activists, you know, are... Uh, upper-middle-class yuppies who don't care about poor people.
3: That is certainly the political image that's put out there, not only by people who are trying to resist attempts to address climate change, but it's often sometimes the underlying assumptions, even of uh, progressives who uh, are trying to push on climate change, that their main source of support might come from a more educated, white, Uh, professional, environmentally conscious, in their view, uh, population. But that's not what the data tell us. For the last ten years, the Public Policy Institute of California has been asking people about their concerns about climate. And in the most recent poll, which, by the way, is pretty much consistent with the last ten years of polling, too, about 50 percent of whites in California say that climate change is a very serious issue that is hurting our economy and quality of life. About 60% of African-Americans and Asians say that it's a very serious issue. About 70% of Latinos say that it's a very serious issue. And in fact, what, I mean, really probably what's going on, we seem to think, is that for a lot of people of color, particularly given the environmental disparities in terms of exposure, it's not an abstract question about climate change in the future, the, you know, polar ice caps uh, and, you know, polar uh, bears. It's really that you associate climate change with the refinery that's in your neighborhood that's polluting and affecting the asthma rates of your children. It's the freeway that's in your neighborhood that's also affecting the air that you breathe, and dealing with climate change is not only going to protect the planet in the long run, but it's going to reduce traffic and reduce pollution from traffic on those roads. So we're looking to build climate alliances, the the road is through environmental justice, and that's actually been shown in the state of California. When two uh, out-of-state Texas-based oil companies tried to overturn our targets to meet climate change by putting a proposition on the ballot saying that uh, we would relax our efforts to address climate change if the economy slowed down. and that it was necessary to do so. Um, You know, it was overwhelmingly people of color that voted against that proposition because those two oil companies were also two oil companies that were among the most racially disparate in terms of their impacts on communities because of where their refining facilities were located. So when we think of building an alliance for climate uh, change, we need to make sure that it's also an alliance for climate justice prioritizing cleanup in communities of color and low-income communities that are the most affected, taking the dollars from things like like, uh, cap-and-trade and and making sure that they're directed to the communities that are the most overexposed and socially vulnerable. And I'm pleased to see at a national level when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others are proposing a Green New Deal, and are thinking about that as a way to address climate overall. But I think talking about that in terms of delivering jobs, good, well-paying jobs to the communities that have long been locked out of that kind of employment.
0: Let's talk about the politics of anti-Trump organizing on climate and other issues. Reading your book, States of Resistance, I learned about this term integrated voter engagement, which I hadn't heard before. How different is that from the traditional candidates, electoral campaigns, you know, knocking on doors to get voters to turn out on election day?
3: You know, it's very different, and it was an important part of the California turnaround. It's actually been an important part of the 2018 uh, congressional uh, midterm um, elections. You know, the sort of secret of uh, California is that when people focus in on change here, they think it was mostly led by political figures like Jerry Brown. And while Jerry Brown is important, it's really important to recognize that the uh, fiscal measures that helped uh, close the deficit in the state of California. The, the proposition that eventually passed was actually not the one that had been proposed by Governor Brown. It had large elements of what had been proposed by community based organizations who were running their own campaign. When Jerry Brown raised the minimum wage in the state of California, he was actually heading off efforts that looked to be very successful by labor and community organizations to have an even more aggressive increase in the minimum wage and even the sanctuary state legislation that passed in the state was jerry brown had really kind of watered down but he was sort of forced to do something to the pressure of community-based organizing so it's community-based organizing and social movement mobilization that i think has been really crucial to turning california around it'll be very crucial to turning around the nation part of that has been integrated voter engagement the easiest way to think about integrated voter engagement is community organizing meets electoral politics. Normally, when you're trying to win an election, what you do is to get out the vote that targets people who are the most likely to vote and the most likely to vote for your candidate. What integrated voter engagement does is says, let's change the electorate. Let's go ahead and dig in deep and go after the new and occasional, the sort of rare voters, uh, who could actually change the complexion of politics. Uh, That is more folks who are voters of color, more low-income voters, more young voters. And the way that you do that is not through a light touch at election time, but through relational organizing for years before the election so you get people to uh, believe the organizers, to engage in other kinds of civic tax, and then to go ahead and do the voting. Right now in California, there's a set of groups, California Calls, PICO, and a number of others that can turn out somewhere between uh, 500,000 and 750,000 new and occasional voters, and that's enough to really pass a whole lot of propositions in the state of California. And that integrated voter engagement has really made politicians pay attention. By the way, that's exactly what uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez did in her district. Rather than uh, going with voters who usually voted She motivated new voters to the polls and toppled a traditional Democratic politician and has gone on to Congress. That is what Stacey Abrams did and nearly won. She should have won if there had been fair vote counting. In the state of Georgia, she motivated new and occasional voters. She changed the electorate. And it's, in fact, what Beto O'Rourke did and nearly won in the state of Texas, is to go after voters that hadn't been engaged before and for a grassroots Democratic candidate to nearly topple an incumbent Republican senator in the state of Texas, that's very much a miracle. And you saw that also in Orange County in California in this last midterm election in which every single congressional seat in the Orange County, the traditional heart of the Republican Party, a modern Republican Party, in California, every single congressional seat is now held by a Democrat, and that was done by people doing grassroots organizing, turning out people who had never voted before.
0: Manuel Pastor, his op-ed, co-authored by Pramila Jayapal, is at latimes.com, and his new book is State of Resistance, What California's Dizzying Descent and Remarkable Resurgence Means for America's Future. He's also a featured speaker at UC Irvine this Friday at 5 o'clock at the Fire and Ice Conference on Climate Change. He'll be at Crystal Cove Auditorium at the UCI Student Center, along with Bill McKibben and Elizabeth Colbert. I'll be there, too. Thank you, Manuel Pastor.
3: Thank you. Pleasure to talk with you.
0: I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Elizabeth Colbert on Trump and Climate Change. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on 90.7 KPFK, streaming at KPFK.org, and online anytime you want it at TrumpwatchPodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali Call Hot Car. But first, climate change brings extreme storms and extreme temperatures, and it also brings extinction of entire species of living things. And Donald Trump doesn't believe it or doesn't care. For comment, we turn to Elizabeth Colbert. She's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1999. Her three-part series for the magazine on global warming, titled The Climate of Man, won the National Magazine Award and several other honors. And her unforgettable book, The Sixth Extinction, won the Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction. And she's a featured speaker at the UC Irvine Conference on Climate this Friday at 5.30. It'll be at the Crystal Cove Auditorium at the UCI Student Center. She'll be there along with Bill McKibben. And she's speaking again on Saturday at 12.30. I'm delighted to be able to say, Elizabeth Colbert, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Trump recently proposed opening 9 million acres of public lands in Western states to oil and gas drilling by abolishing the Obama-era protections for this bird, the greater sage grouse. If you Google sage grouse and Donald Trump, you get more than 200,000 results, and many of them report that Democratic governors as well as Republicans praised Trump's proposal, including... Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, a Democrat, and Oregon Governor Kate Brown, also a Democrat. So the problem is not just Donald Trump.
2: Well, that's certainly true. I mean, the the sage grouse is, you know, I have to confess, I'm not entirely sure it's going to be litigated. um, You know, what's going to happen to the poor sage grouse is undoubtedly going to be bad uh, because its habitat is becoming, you know, fragmented terribly. But I think that the greater point that, that you're uh, suggesting, which is that you know there's a tremendous pressure to develop a lot of Western resources from both sides of the aisle, um, and I should say Eastern too. I don't know why I stopped at the West, even though we know that you know putting in more fossil fuel infrastructure is exactly the wrong thing to be doing, remains sort of a, a tremendous Folly, You know, that's just our political folly that, unfortunately, is is bipartisan at this point.
0: But why should the sage grouse be our main protection against more oil and gas drilling? Why is it the job of the sage grouse to keep it in the ground?
2: Rolling back the protection of the sage grouse, this is one of many, many efforts there are to basically remove protections on, certainly on public land and also, to a certain extent, on private land, and you know full speed ahead uh, on getting as much oil and gas out of the ground as we can and coal i should also add you can't really think of anything stupider uh, to be doing at a moment where we realize that are one of you know the major problems in the world i guess i would argue the major problem in the world right now uh, is, is climate change
0: so people care a lot about the possible extinction of a single species A few people care about the sage grouse, but a lot of people care about the pandas or the tigers or the rhinos. They don't care so much about the larger patterns that you take up in your book, The Sixth Extinction. Uh, Let's talk about that for a minute.
2: Well, I think, you know, that gets back to this issue of, right, storytelling. What do people, what tugs at our heartstrings, what... What gets our attention in a world full of distractions and stories and problems, you know, wrestling for our attention, human, non-human, um, and you know, certainly, if you look at the big organizations that are devoted to conservation, you know, they always show you a picture of, of as you say, of, you know, a panda or, or you know, maybe you get a frog. You, you certainly don't usually get. Uh, know, some kind of creepy, crawly invertebrate who, you know, is probably uh, the majority of the extinctions in the world or, you know, actually probably in the invertebrate world simply because the majority of species in the world are, are invertebrates. So looking at the big global patterns, um, is really it's really hard for people to get their minds around that, and I really appreciate that it's hard for people to get their minds around that. We all live in a particular place and are familiar with a particular flora and fauna, which for most you know, people in the U.S. is a combination of introduced species and native species. And if you live in a city, you know, it's it's a very, very, or even if you live in the country these days, it's a very already denuded, you know, where we have already eliminated a lot of creatures. So um, I think that, you know, that's exactly, I guess, why I wrote The Sixth Extinction, to try uh, to bring this issue in all of its um, import. Uh, home to people in some way. But I also ended up, you know, arranging it, sort of sort of narrating it through different species because, you know, a pattern is not really a good story.
0: Your uh, scientists say part of the problem is that there are several forces that lead to species extinction. Deforestation, loss of habitat, invasive species. And you say in the sixth extinction that what we're doing to the chemistry of the ocean is number one.
2: Well, a lot of scientists would say that changing the chemistry of the oceans, which is actually pretty difficult to do, it has occurred very, very rarely in Earth's history uh, because the oceans are, are vast and they're chemically buffered against change. Um, but nevertheless, by dumping so much CO2 into the atmosphere, we are changing the chemistry of the oceans that that is probably, at the end of the day, uh, yeah, the most dangerous thing we're doing.
0: And why is that?
2: Well, I think that they, that is because, for a couple of reasons. First of all, as I say, simply the oceans, you know, are so much of the, the biosphere, really. You know, we're land creatures, but, but really the oceans cover most of the surface of the Earth, as any, as any kid learns, so that's where a lot, a lot of life on Earth resides. Um, but secondly, as I say, because you know, life on land, you know, climate change is uh, certainly going to be a very, very, very big stressor for a lot of creatures and going to drive a lot of extinctions, probably. Um, but there have been temperature swings in you know in the history of planet Earth. Uh, there quite possibly, you know, has never been, uh, or only at very times of extreme a uh, biological crisis uh... has there been a change in, in ocean chemistry that's occurring as rapidly as right now um, so when you think about it creatures probably just do not have uh... if you don't have any history with something the odds that you're going to be able to adapt to it uh... you know are, are a lot lower uh... so the the way that we are screwing with the oceans uh... also point out are the source of you know most of our oxygen and things like that uh... is, 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 is is bound to have very significant consequences.
0: And there's an unevenness to all of the uh, effects of climate change on species extinction. While many species are going extinct, a few are thriving. You call them disaster taxa. T a x a, a great name. Tell us about disaster taxa.
2: Well, there are some. I mean, once again, intuitively, people know that you know you know rats do quite well in. Urban environments. Um, mosquitoes are doing really well. Uh, there are certain taxa, cockroaches. You know, there are certain groups of creatures that follow people around, uh, into, and when humans create a disturbance, uh, we'll call it that, or build a city, or you know, whatever we do, tend to thrive at the expense uh, as, as other species cannot. More. I, you know, I don't know what to call them. They're not exactly delicate, but they're adapted to different conditions. So there are there are species, certain species that thrive on disturbance, and that's even true in a natural, in the natural world, as it were. You know, there are certain species that, when there's a big forest fire, which you know had, there have been throughout history, would come in would be the first ones to establish in a in an area that's been devastated by fire. So there are certain, you know, that's a pattern that the natural pattern, and now we also see that humans are a kind of disturbance that favor certain species.
0: The reviewer of your book, The Sixth Extinction in Harper's, pointed to one solution, I guess you could call it. Evolution will take its course. Life recovered from the fifth extinction, the death of the dinosaurs. It took a long time, but the Earth has plenty of time to recover from The current one, the sixth, after we are gone, the rats and the cockroaches and the other disaster taxa will thrive and evolve. What do you think about that for the next chapter of evolution on Earth?
2: Well, I I think, you know, I, I think if you're willing to take that very long view that, you know, 10 or 20 million years from now, there'll be a new a new fauna and a new flora that will emerge from the wreckage that we will leave uh, yes, that's true, uh, probably, <laughs> but I don't think people really think in those terms. I think most of us are concerned about the world that our kids are going to inherit and our grandchildren, uh, and that's probably, you know, as far out as we get, and we're not even we're not doing a pretty, pretty lousy job uh, of even handing over an, a habitable planet to our kids. So, you know, I suppose if you want to take comfort in that idea, you know, I, I don't want to prevent you. From doing so, but I I I don't think that's actually um, very useful given this current situation.
0: It's easy to feel hopeless about species extinction after reading your book, but your book does not end with uh, what is to be done. You know, a six-point program. You don't say, you know, drive a Prius or avoid plastic bags. It seems like that won't really do it. Do you have hope at this point?
2: Well, I, I think someone recently made a, gave a talk who said, you know, what we what we need is not hope, but 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 courage. I mean, I think there's way too much talk about, you know, are you hopeful? Are you not? Like your mood that that's not really relevant um, at this point. What's, what's relevant is, you know, are we going to take action or not? You know, increasingly we see the effects of of climate change and all of the other problems that are in the book and we to a certain extent and only to a certain extent i want to say know what we have to do and if we did those things that we know how to do and we know that we you know are going to have to do if we did them as rapidly as possible we would uh certainly make a difference okay that i don't want to say we would not still have very high extinction rates because we probably would but we would be uh bringing that curve down And we're not doing those things. So until we start doing those things, you know, we don't really deserve, you know, to be very hopeful, to be honest.
0: Elizabeth Colbert, her book is The Sixth Extinction. And she's a featured speaker at the UC Irvine Conference on Climate this Friday at 530. It'll be at the Crystal Cove Auditorium at the UCI Student Center She'll be there along with Bill McKibben, and she's speaking again on Saturday at 1230. Thank you, Elizabeth.
2: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. And now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Today's question With Minnesota unemployment so low, why aren't wages going up more in the Gopher State? Minnesotans should be getting a bigger raise this year uh, because employment is under 3%, a historic low. The theory, the market theory of labor, of course, is that labor, like everything else, should be governed by the rules of supply and demand. So when the supply of something becomes scarce, its price should go up. Uh, The price of labor is no different from any other commodity. We learned that from Capital Volume 1. So the price of labor, which is paid in wages, should be going up. Um, Unemployment in, in Minnesota has been under 4% uh, since 2014. That's, you know, more than four years. The last time unemployment was under 4% in Minnesota was way back in the second half of the 90s, between 1995 and 2000. uh, Unemployment in in Minnesota was under 4%. And during that period, uh, Minnesota workers saw an average... An average pay increase, it says here, of $6,367. That's in 2018 dollars. Uh, But uh, lately, wages have hardly gone up at all in Minnesota. So it's hard to understand what has happened to market forces that govern the price of labor in the Golden State. We don't have the answer here. Uh, This has been your Minnesota Moment. It's a special feature of Trump Watch on KPFK. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Harold Meyerson. He talked about Tuesday's State of the Union Address. We also spoke with Manuel Pastor about California's fight against Trump on climate. His new book is State of Resistance. And just to remind listeners, both Manuel Pastor and Elizabeth Colbert will be speaking tomorrow at UC Irvine at the Fire and Ice Conference. Uh, It begins at 4 o'clock with a keynote address by Bill McKibben, followed by a panel discussion including Manuel Pastor and Elizabeth Colbert, I will be there. I will be moderating that discussion. It's in Crystal Cove Auditorium in the UCI Student Center. If you go to the website, it it will tell you that reservations are full, but I am sure that if you show up, you will get in because a lot of people who've made reservations never show up. That is one of the rules of life in L.A. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at a bit four tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali Col- Col- Hot Car. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.